John Lewis and Partners offer quality, value and sustainable home collections all in one place. If you are an interior designer and want to hear about the exclusive trade terms available from John Lewis and Partners business, email business at johnlewis.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and in this show we'll be looking at how interior designers can win new business with the help of three expert guests and my co-presenter Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuto Interiors. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there for interior designers. Competition is fierce and new designers are entering the market every day. We work our socks off, our designs are beautifully considered and we have happy clients, but for many designers the reality is one of alternating feast and famine, and sometimes it can feel as though we were just being left behind. Not only do designers have to find new business, they have to convince new clients that they are the right person for the job, and then close the deal at a level that makes it financially worth doing. On the upside though, increasing public appreciation of interior design and the role of interior designers means that we are currently in an expanding market for interior design services. So what tools do interior designers need to secure new business and how can they be sure they're getting their fair share of the action? Welcome to the interior design business. Providing us with their insights and advice today, we're delighted to be joined by a man who literally wrote the book on this subject, Lloyd Princeton from the Design Management Company. And we're also thrilled to have Helen Bygraves and Jenny Weiss, the co-founders of the internationally renowned Hill House Interiors. Welcome all three of you. Thank you. Hi. Before we begin, can you just introduce yourselves? Lloyd. Well, as you mentioned, I did write, write a book that was a decade ago marketing interior design. I had a very robust professional speaking career. Um, I had a pleasure of speaking uh, throughout North America and uh, internationally and in the UK in particular where uh, I met the lovely Susie. Eventually, my, my, the pearls of wisdom as were appreciated by the audience uh, seemed somewhat common sense to me, but it, it became necessary to encapsulate it into a, a simple volume, uh, which is largely based on marketing, but also includes some contract negotiations. So uh, that, in a nutshell, I, I have an expertise in the business side of design uh, and, and simplified marketing, uh, pricing, how designers sell and uh, their services and product, uh, and then sales distribution, how how they, these things ultimately get uh, distributed. And I've been blessed to have a uh, now going on 25 year career. And uh, probably about a decade ago, um, I did a bit of a pivot from uh, the business consulting to uh, recruiting. And now I have a, a robust uh, search practice in the, the United States primarily. Helen, over to you. Yes, yeah, so um, my name is Helen Bygraves. Um, I'm, as you say, one of the co-founders of Hill House Interiors, and we've been established for 25 years this year, actually, so our silver jubilee. Um, and um, yes, still growing strong with a team of 30, and um, yeah, working basically on projects all over the world currently. And Jenny? Yes, it seems a very long time ago since we, the two of us set this up 
and um, just grew organically over the years. And uh, we had some very good uh, contracts along the way um, and increased our team gradually. But now we've had, we opened an architectural team, was it about uh, five, six, five to six years ago? And so we've, we've got um, architectural teams, probably five on that. And you know, great team of designers, all, you know, quite a young team really. We mainly deal in the high-end residential market, but definitely not limited to that. We have done a couple of um, boutique hotels as well. Fantastic. Lloyd, we're going to start at the beginning. What must interior designers have to begin effective selling? It helps to have a, a business uh, presence, but the, you know, I, would, I have seen it work with something as simple as a business card, um, a little bit of moxie, and uh, hopefully a modicum of uh, talent. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, having the pleasure to uh, participate with Hill House that has been around for, you know, three decades. And, uh, and yet I've also seen some incredibly talented young professionals come into the trade who essentially just throw up a website with maybe a set of images from a project they did, which could have very well been their parents' house. And, uh, you know, voila. They're, they're moving in the business. And by no means is there a comparison between, you know, a firm of 30 that's, you know, dealing with, you know, construction ground up and can work in, the, in hospitality, which is very spe highly specified. Um, and, uh, and yet as little bit of that can make a go of it. I'm endlessly impressed by the entrepreneurial spirit uh, and how people, you know, excel and how they start. Can I ask you, Helen and Jenny, Take your mind back 25 years ago. What started you off? How did you get uh, the first client? Um, I would say that, you know, contacts were very important at that time. And we were very fortunate to be given an opportunity to work with a, a high-end residential developer and work on one of their development show houses. And that was a big sort of like kick up to um, a, a ready-made audience, really, um, because they had a really very good following. So we were very fortunate to be able to, to start in that way. So how important do you think is the interior designer's brand? I mean, Lloyd, you just touched on the fact that someone with a business card and some moxie and one good project under their belt can kind of launch themselves on the world. How, how is that design, that successful designer defining themselves? It's, it's a tricky question and I, and I only hesitate because I've seen many successful design professionals have a specific look and an identity that they that they become known for. I was just in a hotel here uh, last night that had been originally done by uh, Philippe Stark, and you know his his work is very recognizable. And yet, I've also seen plenty of professionals who um, work in a variety of aesthetics, and they pride themselves on not just on not just doing one thing. So, um, and I've also seen a full end of the spectrum: people who are highly trained, who are uh, who've taken the time to pass, you know, the tests, or they're registered with Reba, or you know, whomever, you know, they they have all the skills. And then we have just decorators who are also become exceedingly, you know, successful as well. So um, it, it runs the full gamut. And I, maybe that's the beauty of the industry is there's a um, it, it's open to many people, and they can be successful with 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 or with less or more training, and hopefully, you know, with a lot of taste. <laughs> So should they be sort of defining what they're doing as a brand or do you think the brand is sort of goes beyond the look of their projects? So you're talking about you were talking about just then about brand as a as a, as a, as a decorating style. But is there a, is there an, is there another element to brandedness that interior designers should be looking out for? 
so if, if a practice like mine that works in many styles you know i'm i'm yeah how am i going to brand my business well i think you're you're known for something susie you've been around for a very long time and as as hill house start you know mentioned you have a degree of contacts so in a sense it is who you know how you've been recognized when your projects, people come into the projects, they actually like your projects. Um, it is possible you may eventually get recognized for, for a look. Kelly Hoppen is recognized. She's capitalized on, on celebrity in the family um, and now and, and has built an amazing brand in her school. And then, you know, the coffee table books have gotten published and then she's worked internationally. I mean, there's a few different ways to do it. And I know it's not the direct, it's not the answer I think that you're looking for I, because I see many people achieve it different ways. Um, you know, the, the ultimate coffee table book, I think that seems to be the now, it, especially in the, in the, I know in the, U, in the US, um, that's when you've arrived. And to produce one of those appropriate books is a 50 to $100,000 endeavor and a two year process. So there's, it, and yet I see plenty of other people who've succeeded without that too. So I think, it, you know, you are your brand, you know, and you are as good as your ability to promote yourself and to be to be to be recognized as you know as such you know I, I I say this I hope she doesn't mind me saying but I know that you know Kelly demands when she does anything she participates she flies first class you know she draws a line in the sand of what the standard is that you know she needs if you want to actually work with her or have her involved in anything it, that sends a message so I, I think in a sense she she's setting a standard that helps define her brand. How did Hill House work out who you were selling to? Well, I think as Helen touched on, we, we started working with a, a company called Optical Developments and uh, they had a particular clientele, wealthy, um, aspirational, and, um, and uh, we, as Helen said, we were, we're fortunate to have uh, started off with a, a great show as and we suddenly got this wonderful following of people that just came to see whatever we did and came quite a long way. Um, to see it these are the days well before social media obviously it probably did come from that didn't yeah it? it came from from people actually wanted to see oh what's the next project that you're doing because yeah. there was a following with the developer was... and then we went along for several years with the developer and worked on a lot of their projects uh, changing some of the specifications as well as doing the show houses yeah, i think and... there was great excitement actually wasn't there when um let's see what hill house are going to do next um, yeah. which is always never doing the same thing twice mm -hmm. And, and so the brand kind of became recognised. Pretty much, and then entering quite a few awards right in the beginning um, and being successful with those awards as well. So that kind of put you on, a, on the map quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So you didn't at any stage sort of say, okay, you know, it's basically, we, we are targeting Octagon. It was, it, was, it was a chance meeting, it was a chance um, situation uh, that happened. And often the best things in life are, aren't they? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and it, it literally, took off from there from you know not only was it then um that particular developer then other developers came came up as well we worked quite early doors with uh, on trevor square with crandillman didn't we yeah. when crandillman were around and we worked on the harrods um distilleries wasn't it depositories and um and and from there you know and we we were sort of known from from being at the um, International Property Awards as it was then at the moment. And, and that's how we met the, the developers and through the developers in Harrods Estates, we were introduced to, to that project. So it was a stepping stone, as I say, and from there you, you organically grow. And, um, and I think if you're quite social at the events, you can meet various different personalities and, 
and invariably there's some that you gel very well with and um, that seems to tie the connections nicely. I was going to ask about that because the network that you build is so important isn't it to growing a business? Crucial yes it is it is for us we've um, I mean pre-covid I think we were probably out networking probably after work about three times a week and um, and we've, we're involved in various um, governing bodies we, we go to early breakfast meetings as well seminars. Um, yeah seminars um we belong to the BIID and the SPID and uh, also we're Absolutely. a member of the um yes luxury property forum as well which is quite a new um which is quite a new group it's been going a year now um aimed at the and people all sorts of them um, all sorts of professions just within the, the um high-end property market we're also involved recently, and we've got a, an event at Chelsea Harbour um, in a couple of weeks' time for the Design Forum as well, where we're helping promote young designers and, and how they can branch into the marketplace and what, what we like and why we like it and giving them a foresight um, into. And, and we're always doing, you know, interns and, you know, work experience here for, for young, youngsters coming through. So try to give back to the industry, um, to the up and coming, you know, people of the future, really. You touched on um, you touched on uh, social media because you were saying you started off obviously in the days pre-social media. How what sort of social media presence do you think designers should be aiming for in this day and age? Well, it's totally turned on its feet over the last couple of years. Social media and um, it's 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 a lifeline to your next project quite often um, or, or constant projects, may I say? Um, and I think your sort of how far you believe in it and how, how far you invest in it depends on how successful you are. I mean, we've been staggered at, at, at how um, effective it is, really. Um, Instagram, particularly, we've got probably our, actually our biggest, Some of our biggest ever, clients um, has come from Instagram, which is incredible. Um, and um, so we, we tend to post um, projects every day um, and do various stories when we're out on site. We make sure we're sort of, we're doing um, in, interest stories about, you know, how the site's coming along, what's happening there, and just sort of like- um, Engaging. In, in, yeah, engaging people, just, you know, just really um, trying to do that as much as possible, just to keep engagement with them. So is, is that this true in America also? Mostly, and I think it, it varies firm by firm. I 100% agree about, uh, about Instagram. And one of the things that they mentioned, which I think is, is absolutely key, and I would take a moment to elaborate on that, is engagement. You know, in this case, as I understand engagement, and hopefully as they mean it, is they're actually responding to the people who reach out to them. And if they have so many followers, I'm, it's not infrequent that they, you know, hopefully they're getting some interesting, you know, direct messages, preferably from their new big clients, but then also people are responding and that takes time and it's a back and forth. I was actually just, I'm working with the, with a new client that has actually hired an agency to do their work. And I was, I was really disappointed that the agency wasn't responding to people who were, who were, uh, you know, making comments. And I think that's, I think it's just critical to having, because what you're doing and what they're doing very successfully at Hill House is, is creating a relationship. And it's a back and forth, which leads towards a relationship. And I believe that's how they, what they're referring to the quality of their contacts. It's not just somebody like, 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 liking. This is somebody who actually really goes, oh, wow, that's a really cool story. Or, oh, I could see myself living in that house. 
that's really, it's, it's incredibly valuable. It is also very time consuming. And obviously with 30 people on their staff, I think when I looked at your, your website, you do have someone designated to marketing. So, you know, I mean, you have people who have time to engage on the multiple platforms as well. For my clients that have smaller agencies, and maybe sometimes it's just themselves, I'll often say, just pick one maybe Instagram. And we also, I don't know if you have house in the UK, but we also have had, so all that takes time to upload the images and do that. And if you're, if you're a sole practitioner, or even some of my clients who've got 10 people on staff, they're still super busy and don't have time to really carefully do that. So I recommend only break off and only break off and, you know, and, and chew as much as you're able to thoroughly. And then if you have the time or the resources spread to additional platforms as well. Yeah, Lloyd, I would say that even, even, you know, the size we are, we're still heavily involved in our social media, even though we have somebody who works Good for you. That's powerful. with us. It, it's fundamental that the, 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 the ethos and the stories come from the people at the top down and, um, and the message you're trying to give. So, yes, you have to make the time. You have to make the time. And the selection of images. And I still like to go on all the photo shoots that we do and sort of like work with the photographers. And so I think that's very important as well. It's that dedication and attention to detail, which is, is what's paying off. And that's why you're succeeding at what you're doing. And not everyone, you know, and you can delegate certain things to outside. But to your point, it's not really coming from your heart or spirit. It's someone else hope, trying to interpret what you might think. And they can do it a little bit, but I don't know how effective. You know, one of my, one of the, one of the, my, my buddies and somebody I admire a lot is Martin Lawrence Bullard. And Martin really, really is involved. You know, and he doesn't, and when you send him a note, you get a note right back. And I think, you know, that's why he has so many celebrities who engage back and forth on his Instagram and, um, and they're paying attention to what he's doing and they're making notes. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenally uh, fascinating and, and powerful, you know, uh, forum. It's a much more dynamic world than just having a website and some good photos, although, of course, that's super important. Well, I think nowadays um, um, we've noticed how much uh, how many um, how much business can come from Instagram, whereas previously people did look at our website and that's mainly where the starting point was. And they'd look at several people's websites. But I think so many people are not everyone looks at websites. No, anymore, I think they're actually. literally following loads of people on Instagram and they just, you know, and it is and it is exactly what it says on the can really. It's pretty instant, isn't it? People want to be um, inspired and uh, and then they'll get in touch with you. I mean, we're working on projects in parts of England we would never really be working on, like Lincolnshire, you know, Leicestershire, Leicestershire Derbyshire. Um, Derbyshire. And this is all because they follow us on Instagram. And we had we had someone from Canada um, yesterday saying, oh my God, I love your cushions <laughs> on that picture. So, you know, so she's, they're interested. In, I mean, we've got followers all over, which is lovely. Yeah. But yeah. as you say, it's very instant. So the pace of your work now is so fast mm. you know the, the the uptake and the and you have to be you have to be careful how you manage your time expectations and your your level of works um you know and to make sure that you you know you're not taking on too much or taking on too little and you manage your workload and i do think that people are very interested in the process not just the gorgeous picture at the end of it so I think we, we we do try and sort of like show them the story along the way and how you know what our inspiration was you know and and really sort of like I love a before and after shot as well and I think loads of people do um and uh, and really sort of like you know whilst we're nearly finishing and then you've got the decorators out on site and you've got the electricians you've got the kitchens being installed and everything we like to photograph all of that as well 
not just the perfect ending. And if I may add to that, I've I've heard a lot of designers be successful by being specifically mentioning their mistakes. You know, they invite involve 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 their their audience in the things that go wrong and then how it gets fixed. And they said that that's incredibly well received because it's reality. Definitely, definitely. I think that's I think that's somehow how you win work as well when people can relate to you. I think it also gives a bit of more of a human face to you, um, you know, rather than these interior designers that, as you say, might be sort of um, just these particular sort of figures um, that they actually have got a, a sense of humour and they can be self-deprecating and, uh, and actually quite, you know, fun as well. I have a quick question, if I may, just I appreciate your thoughts on this. How, um, how valuable do you feel that designers posting inspiration shots, you know, old, old, old images from, you know, uh, uh, from resorts or something, you know, I know, Palm, you know, Palm Beach social diary, they'll, they'll show something from the twenties or the thirties or the forties. Um, how do you, how do you feel that your audiences would respond to respond to that? I mean, I, I do quite like it myself. I mean, I think we get more engagement from, um, from showing an actual sort of like lifestyle shot of something we've actually done. And we tend to, we tend to just use images. Our own images. Our own images. Um, but I, but, but if you're doing a lovely 1920s, 1940s sort of like, uh, like on my beautiful car. And because I think um, that can be, iconic. you know, like, yeah, iconic and sort of like classic design can cover so many things, can't it? But we're always being asked, always being asked where our, um, where our ideas and our inspiration comes from. And, and, and it comes from everything. We, you know, we, we, we're, we're very closely aligned with fashion in interiors. We, you know, we take a lot of inspiration from nature and um, Jenny and I are both lover of the theatre. So, um, so we love, and you know, costume. and mm. costume. So, you know, inspiration comes from, from everywhere really. Um, and I think if you've got a designer's eye, you see inspiration everywhere too. And in terms of that visual style, the photographer that you work with, do you work with one photographer or? No, we work with a, we work with a few um, and it depends on the location of the project. It also depends on the availability because we might just have a small window where the client might have gone away and they said, look guys, you can, you know, you've got a week, you can photograph it now when we're not here. Um, so um, it really depends who's available, but, but we have got our favorite um, photographers that work closely with us and, and know what we, what we expect and what we want. But as and um, saying, you know, with COVID for instance, um, you know, we're doing a project at the moment in Lake Como. So we have, we are choosing an Italian photographer rather than taking somebody from the UK or from France or wherever. So we are actually using a more local photographer that's been actually in this in this situation, somebody that's been recommended. So uh, watch for that one. That one's coming soon. And would you then expect the photographer, the different photographers to adjust their style or do you let them do their own thing? As Jenny said, we pretty much um, like to be on set guiding what type of, you know, photography we, we require. And that might be because it, it needs to be in a certain format for our website or it's because it might need to be um, different things for social media. So you may take an overall shot and then you may do two or three up, up close shots for, you know, a series of pictures that might you might show on social media. So it's quite specific, um, our requirements from, from different shoots. But also, having said that, each photographer has their own talent. So we like to go with their, you know, their, their sort of like, their, their take on it as well, because you could sometimes miss something if it's just all about what you think is right yeah. and not 
you know, photographers, I mean, when, also the talent. Yeah, when, when I'm on site with them, it's very much, um, I'm there to guide and, and let them, you know, use, use kind of their skills to create what we would like. But at um, the same time, they want to talk with us as well about, look, come and see this shot. What do you think? You know, so just we're looking, it, it, it again, it's a process. It's very two-way, yeah. yeah. How should interior, de interior designers go about presenting themselves to the world? How important is your own personal presentation to to your, your look and your feel and your brand? I think attention to detail in your interiors shows up whether you've got attention to detail in maybe your the way you dress or uh, you know the the information that you may bring along bring along to a meeting or you know how you how you present yourself um, is crucial. I think how you win your business or how how you gel with your clients is very much down to your personality. Sometimes um, it's how you how you open a discussion, how you sort of like kind of you have to be a little bit nosy about people sometimes to get inside their brains, maybe to get inside, you know, you know, the sort of thing that they're looking for so that you can get maybe onto a certain wavelength that people identify and you can identify with your client. So I think there's a lot of questions that are often obviously asked, um, but that's not just to be nosy, that's actually to, to understand your client and to, to really um, make sure that you're given A, the correct information and B, the right, um, the right sort of advice really. Um, it, one of the things I was also curious about, interior designers do tend to get pigeonholed into one market sector or another. So they'll end up being you know, high end residential designers or hotel designers or hospitality designers. Is there anything that designers can do to break into out into other potentially um, more lucrative or, or more interesting areas? Well, I would actually say that high-end residential interiors have to have all the things that high-end hotel design has now because our clients are so well-traveled. They stay in some of the best hotels in the world. And what they see and the level of detail that they're looking at all the time often means that they want to um, evolve and, and create something in their own home that emulates a fabulous hotel. So whether we have, and we have done some boutique hotels, but whether you have or you haven't, I would say there's a very close link now between high-end resi and hotel design. I'd also say that some of the houses we work on are actually the size of um, hotels, aren't they? <laughs> um, but, um, but also, I think, I think with um, what's become you know much more in people's minds now that the people haven't been able to travel um is actually we've got this you know i want my home that i live in probably 50 weeks of the year or 48 weeks of the year you know i want to be that to be amazing i don't just want to go on this wonderful holiday for four weeks of the year i want where i live to be amazing because that actually you know should bring you joy and your home should bring you joy and that spills over onto other aspects of your life so i think it's sort of where you live and and what you surround yourself with is very, very important. Um, Lloyd, did you have anything that you wanted to sort of contribute to perhaps how designers can break or move from one shimmy from one market sector to another? Sure, absolutely. I think um, for one is a being open to it, you know, and having the desire to do it because not everybody wants to do, I know designers who are very comfortable where where they're at and and they've got a uh, they've got a niche and they enjoy it uh but in the case of doing hospitality or commercial or something international or something in a different state um as it would be in the united states oftentimes um it's saying yes to one of your clients who's enjoyed what you've done for them residentially 
and or vice versa you did their office and they go god we would love you to do our house or we want you to do our ski lodge and veil or something like that and i i've noticed that to be an organic expansion uh, both ge geographically and then also in terms of specialty um and then you know if you're also really desirous of doing something that you haven't done, it could be a medical office or whatever, is oftentimes I think reaching is going to one of the trade shows that are, you know, germane and very specific to a specialty. So, you know, since we're on the hospitality subject, subject in the United States, we have obviously the, the HD show in a hospitality design show in Las Vegas, which is a big one every year and it's actually now coming up in August um, and then there's HD boutique which I think still happens in well may still happen in Florida uh, and there might even be something that happens in New York as well so I know designers will who've never done it will just go and explore and look at the different types of product that are available and they'll start talking to the different vendors and sales reps who are specific to the trade and I don't know if it's the same in the UK but in in, in our in the US these markets are very they're very distinctive, you know, luxury res residential and commercial, for instance, different showrooms, different trade shows, different uh, sales reps and, 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 you know, all of it. So the twain don't over, they don't overlap. <laughs> You've got to, you have to have an intention to want to get to it. No, Lloyd, it's the same in the UK as well. They don't overlap. However, people's expectations are what I say really overlap in terms of their yes. homes. But we have done um, stretch ourselves, obviously, to work on on houses uh, overseas. But also, you know, we worked on a yacht as well, which was one of our clients said, could we work on their yacht? So, yes, you're, you know, it's how um, how open you are to, to to face new challenges and to and to enjoy the, um, the journey with with what that brings. But sometimes, sometimes you can have one, you can get the opportunity to work on one project in a particular market sector. It doesn't necessarily then lead to a whole work stream in that sector. Um, and I think, you know, what I'm really trying to get out here is how, are there any ways that if, if somebody really wanted to focus on, I don't know, yeah, physiotherapy clinics or gyms or something, you know, how would they go about, about making sure they got repeat business in that particular sector? Uh, I, I, let me dovetail onto that. You know, for instance, so Hill House, as they have already mentioned, has um, added to their studio by by creating an architecture department, um, which is not atypical now. Architecture firms adding interior studios as well as interior firms adding architecture studios. So there's one. You set the intention and you start staffing the technical skills for it. You mentioned doing a yacht. Marine, obviously, specialized. Aviation, they come to you because they want their private plane. That level of specificity on a plane and what can fit in there and the weights and balances, super important. And if you don't have that experience, you're probably going to have to, you know, retain an engineer or someone who who's specific to that aeronautical. So you hire that out, you learn about it. And then once you gain that, and let's say it's photographed, and then you decide you want to get more of that specialty, then you might start going to an aviation show and you start introducing yourself or you hire somebody who's in business development who can help you target that. Um, once again, you need to, there are concrete steps to doing it. Now, if you're fortunate and you do something like often cases in hospitality and it gets published or it's, it's not just published, but it's also recognized in the in general media. So the public really sees it or the guests, you know, get there and they go, yes, this was done by Hill House. That 
helps you know fuel the pump of 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 your next of your next project as well so that might be slightly more organic but you need to show up and be present and you need to be present in all levels uh and once again like your sale even the sales reps you know working with the different the different uh vendors that are out there they can often be referral sources too so you know you've got to target it absolutely what would you say lloyd would be the best way for a designer starting off getting their first project what do they need to do that's a good question. You know, work, work with your personal network. You know, the, the, you know, the ladies mentioned the things that they, that they started doing, the morning networking breakfasts, going to conferences, uh, uh, joining you know, certain groups, or there could be a luxury society, whatever is germane to what you want, or developers. Listen, all of these, every food group, what if you want to target doctors? You mentioned physio clinics. Well, where I would go for that is I would go to a monthly meeting or a quarterly meeting of, you know, the, the, uh, I'm going to call them physios, um, but they they have meetings and you show up just like well people when they market to the real estate industry and the developers they've got regular meetings you know or you're going to go to your prime real estate you're going to make it a point of taking out for lunch um, one of the top agents within the prime you know sector for night Frank for instance you know and I did that when I was in the UK I had actually made sure I met I met a lot of the a lot of the top ones so you physically go out there and and, and I call it dialing for dollars pick up the phone. Ask if you can sit down and meet with them or take them to a meal or however you're going to do it. Or if it's a large office, if you can present to the office, you know, what you're doing. And so what should designers do during that first? So they've, they've, they've now got their client. They've been called to that first meeting. What are the most important things they need to do during that first all important face-to-face -face client contact? I just think there's so much information you need to, you know, you need to know. Um, and, and, um, and where that meeting takes place really depends on the type of project. I mean, we do work on a lot of brand new projects, so there isn't even any, anything physical to look at other than plans. So we might have that meeting here in our studio, um, sometimes with the architect, sometimes with the, you know, part of the, depends how far advanced it is, depends what stage we've, um, we're on board. Um, and, um, you know, really um, just we will find out as, as much as we can. We do actually have a questionnaire we send out to uh, clients ahead of any meeting actually, so that we know a lot about them. Very much so. How did you hear about us? What, what's, the, what's the property? What are your children's names? How old are they? Who's going to be living in the property? How old is it? What do you, what, what's your vision? You know, there's a, there's a, there's is there a, a budget? It's like a, it's like a, yeah, budget, obviously. <laughs> there's a, there's a three page um, questionnaire that we just like to, them to fill in to give us much more of an insight. Then we can sort of build on that during the meeting. Brilliant. And then do you, and do you also go to the trouble of explaining the design services that you have on offer? Yes, yeah. Sometimes we've actually done a bit of that before, but briefly before they come to a meeting. Um, so I might just recap on that when they're here. So it might be our, you know, do we work with lighting designers? Do we have landscape designers? You know, what sort of architectural services we have? So sometimes they come with an architect, so we dovetail into to the architect's plans, and when we create our own, and we work together on a central system where any any changes that we make get you know get created onto one portal. Um, so, so different different expectations in terms of the build process. Should it be a new build or a, or a you know or a, re a, re a re renovation? Or, yeah. just, or sometimes just a simple ever new job. So it really really depends. And Lloyd, how important is all of that in winning the client's trust? Well, I think that's all critical to, as they pointed out, the you know, hopefully seamless or at least seamless to the client execution of the project. But I would I would only add to that and since we're back to the first meeting 
that I think it's it's critical that the designer um, establish appropriate expectations about what is realistic because you know clients want one thing, but the reality, particularly as we mentioned, delays that you know supply chain delays that are beyond our control, reality could be very different. So I think the first meeting a designer should be confident. I think they should be in charge. They've been hired as a professional to do a project. So the client can say, these are the things I'm looking for. And I believe it's the designer's responsibility to say, that's great. And you can have that in this context. This is the time frame. This is the cost. And that's how it has to be. And not be afraid to push back when a client is not, is not realistic. And you know, you simply can't deliver. I don't know that you necessarily need to under promise and over deliver, you know, but if you can be accurate, at least that's realistic. Cause I've been with many designers on business meetings and, and where we've gone to finalize agreements and things. And, you know, you kind of want to kick the designer into the table. Like that's not possible in, in 90 days or 120, right. It's going to be six months. And if we're lucky and it goes sooner, that's great. Should designers charge for that first meeting? Uh, that's a great question. If this is an interview, and uh, they're just, it's a meet and greet, and you're not um, being asked to give them lots of design ideas and walk through the whole property. If it's purely, this is the property, we want you to see it, I want to meet you, tell me about your background, um, and then we're going to ask for you to come back to us and give us a proposal, then I don't see the need to charge for that. However, I have certain clients who, or designers who, you know, will go, you know, this meeting's going to be, you know, X hundreds of pounds, and that will be credited to your first invoice. That could be acceptable too. I find interviewing and not charging, but the minute somebody wants to take my consultative knowledge, I immediately tell them, oop, we're at an initial consultation. You know, that's going to cost you a thousand dollars for the first hour. You can go ahead and pay by credit card and we'll get going. You know, so I, I, I you know, and, and I say the designer should, would do the same, can do the same thing because right see, and I think what's really critical, Susie, is that that was the other thing I didn't mention. You're also, you're also getting a feel for them in terms of what they're willing to spend and their tolerances. And what they're doing is they're pushing the designer too to see how am I going to be able to get them down on something? When am I going to be able to take a little bit? And that at the beginning is not the time to start discounting things. Now is not the time to underpromise, And now is not the time to say, sure, I'll knock some money off here. Well, you know, my, I'm, kind of, I, I'm in favor of going, listen, we're going to give you the proposal and this is what it's going to be. And if you do everything you said you're going to do and you're going to make quick decisions and this project goes seamlessly and we end a little early, then we'll give you credit at the end. Because, heck, if things don't work out, you won't have given the credit. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it happens. I think it's a time to be strong. And I think it's to be time to be people. People, people appreciate leadership, particularly the rich. I mean, not that they don't want the rich really want a deal. They love a discount. But you know, there's different ways to give it to them, but now is not the time. That's not the time to be weak. I think you know you're, hi you're hired for your leadership, and I, that's the time to, to exercise it. As soon as we go out for a meeting of any description, we charge um, sort of like a an, an initial meeting fee, um, and it's kind of if somebody isn't prepared to pay that for that initial design fee, that hour or two hours consultation, it doesn't really bode very well for the project, <laughs> in our opinions. And so, so what, what do you find? I mean, I don't suppose that um, Hill House, you ever find yourself in this position, but I, I know designers often find themselves in a, in a beauty parade where someone is interviewing half a dozen designers and sometimes there's a long list and then there's a short list and it goes on and on and on and on. Sometimes we are in that situation, actually, um, Susie. Um, not too often, thankfully. Not too often, <laughs> but occasionally, you know, we find there's two or three people we're coming up against um, 
sometimes in central London as well, although we're in, we're in Surrey, but we do come across, you know, central London designers quite a bit. Um, and I think it does come down to, we all have quite a similar skill set. Uh, it might come down to individual styles. It might come down to personality of who you're working with and how your personalities gel together. So you're never going to win every job but you hopefully are going to win the ones that are a right fit for you. You're talking about a situation where you're just going for an interview and everyone else is just being interviewed. But what about if the, if the client starts sort of saying, well, I want sample schemes and I want this, that and the other. Would you ever get involved in that? What would, what would your advice be to designers? Never free. We wouldn't put no. schemes together for free. No, no. Because quite honestly, um, if somebody isn't going to pay you for that service. There's always somebody else that will, fortunately. So... Um, you can't... I don't think we'd have been in business 25 years if we did all that. <laughs> and Jenny, how often do you come up against a client who perhaps doesn't really understand the service that they're buying from you? Yeah, um, I think it's the, our job to sort of make sure they do know uh, what they're buying from us. And I, I think we make sure that um, it's very clear. Every drawing is signed off, every sample is signed off. Um, and this is something we've learned along the way. Um, you know, you they you have to be so, um, what's the word? Contractual. Yes. Yeah, you just have to make sure it's all- um, In a nice way, but I think you do have, even the initial contract, you know, if someone says, yes, I agree, and I've sent you money, we still try, we still get that signature of the signed contract yeah. because it's yeah. it's so crucial that they, that they put their pen to paper and they actually understand what they've got. And if you don't actually ask for that signature, some people don't actually read it. So we've, we've got our clients and we've had our first meetings and we've got our contract signed and everything is tickety-boo. But I mean, obviously it would be great if, um, in fact, it's every designer's dream to have lots of happy customers who keep coming back to them with new projects and, and also recommend them to their friends and colleagues. So how can designers go about making sure that happens? How can they secure those work streams? Well, I think it's exactly what Hill House is doing. I mean, they've got they have protocols in place and they they execute their projects, you know, at a, with a high high degree of uh, professionalism and and specificity. And you know, you do what you say you're going to do. Bottom line. And when a mistake happens, you acknowledge it, you fix it, you move on. That's it. I don't I don't believe there there's more to it. There are little there's nice touches you can do if it was a particularly wonderful project and you had it photographed, you could prepare a book for them as a little before and after and give that to them as a gift. I've seen that be very effective. Um, and then keep in touch with your clients. You know, when you buy a when you buy a table at a charity, you know, event, you you invite them to attend at your table. There's little things you can do through the course of your relationship after the, the successful completion of a project. And by the way. Sometimes projects don't end successfully, but it doesn't mean that the relationship's over. Sometimes it's just a little breather and they recognize that, you know, there was stuff happens. They're, they're angry that it, something went wrong and it was through no fault of the design professional that it went wrong and everyone gets upset. Or maybe it was another vendor on the project. So I just think that that you continue to nurture that relationship. And as I said, and of course, it always begins with exceptional work people come in fre frequently some of the best referrals are because someone went to some somebody's house or their hotel and they go oh my god i love this i could live here and then you know who did it and then you know they they go yeah and they're wonderful to work with so i think that um you know that's that's what it's about you know i've i and by the way i've got you know clients that i've done 15 you know placements for i've a lot of a lot of recruiting um you know 10 placements for i also have ones that you know go horribly just it's just the relationship doesn't work and one i can't wait for the first one to be over so i never have to talk to him again 
it, hap it, it happens, you know, and I'm sure they feel the same way. And I hope they don't call me again. It's, I don't know, you know, it's, and, and, and I honestly don't try any less hard, you know, on that first one with, with a new client than I would, you know, but I will say working with repeat clients who are lovely people is one of the biggest joys in my business because I want to work hard for them. I want them to be happy. And all of a sudden things go well. And if something goes wrong, they're, they're, they're okay with it. They understand, they know your, your level of commitment to them. And that's a real pleasure. So a lot of a lot of interior designers, obviously Hill House have got a huge team, but a lot of interior designers are actually one man bands and they tend to struggle to maintain a sort of a fluid continuity in their work streams. So it's either feast or famine and they're either drowning or starving. And I just wonder whether you've got any tips, perhaps Lloyd, you could take this one about how designers, um, smaller teams of designers can manage their workflows. One of the best ones is utilization of technology. Um, I think that systems and pro be organized and utilize technology to get keep you as organized as possible. Um, you know, for instance, uh, in the U.S., we have Studio Webware, which is a an accounting and a uh, project management. Uh, a system that's based in the cloud. So you can access it from your home, your office, your, 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 your project site and have all of your data, everything available to you. Um, one point of entry to have multiple, you know, uh, pieces of paper generated. I mean, you can put in, put in a, the information on, on items once, generate a proposal to a client, get approval, get any kind of edits necessary to it, generate purchase orders to your vendors, generate the final invoicing, all that contained in, in, in one, professional system and beautiful proposals with your images and tear sheets and exactly what you want. Some more information for some client, less information for other clients, um, different sales tax zones, delivery method, different price rates, things like that. So it allows a very small team or a large team, but it allows, you know, the, the, an office to do the work of many by utilizing, you know, the technology. And there's also other other programs out there um, that now you can do your procurement and you can start ordering your your furniture online. I have a, I have a new client or potential actually client. She was talking about what they do is they actually, they don't even do any procurement. All they do is design. They create a whole Pinterest board and then they send that to the client and the client can buy things um, from retail sources directly. And she has a team of eight people. So it's a different business model. And that's something that is very germane today that wasn't happening. I don't, ladies, correct me. I don't think you could do that even a year or two ago or three years. I mean. I think that's fine if it's not the sort of high-end bespoke luxury market, because we're, we're dealing with so many unique um, artisans and pieces that we want to include into our projects, which means that, you know, um, there's so much, uh, so much bespoke element to that, that you wouldn't be able to just, send it to somebody to, to sort of create very easily. But I think you but I think if you're doing a, a more of a painting by numbers type of thing, you can buy that table, you can buy that chair, you can buy that sideboard, buy that lamp. That's a little bit different. And that's definitely probably get the look sort of thing um, from a Pinterest board um, possibility. Well I, I don't disagree with you at all. I was just saying and that is an option at what what one firm is doing. For firms like yourself, which are highly, which you know, are scalable, whether it's two people in an office or thirty people in an office, 
having that technology to automate your systems to have everyone on you know they're you know where you're using Microsoft Teams or whatever you're doing for your communications having all that seamlessly done and at, you know at, at your level you have a business manager you probably have the designated IT person who's making sure everything is synced and moving along swimmingly because there something goes wrong and it's a huge time waster so to, so back to highly specified world which is the majority of my clients they're organized exceedingly organized everything is protocoled the same way whether it's binders and everything so everyone can touch it and know where it's going to be and you don't walk into messy library you've got your intern making sure everything's put back so you can find it so you can move along efficiently as well and you're having your vendors prepare things for you um, and do some of the work and maybe even you have trusted vendors do some scheming and bring you over things so there's a lot of ways to save time and to Susie's question when you're a smaller office that's how you do it. You, you rely on other people that you can trust and you build very key relationships, which is probably one of the reasons why I think a lot of designers oftentimes will use the same manufacturers and vendors over and over again. It's not because they're bored. It's because they trust them and they know that they're going to deliver the quality and they're not going to embarrass them in front of their clients. But I think there is one other aspect to this. And I, I think a lot of very small practices and one-man bands might work on one or two projects and they'll beat themselves up getting to the finishing line and then they put their heads up and go, hang on a minute, where's my next project coming from? Because what they haven't done is set aside any skerrick of time, regular time to make sure that they're still out there marketing. And, you know, they get so subsumed by the, the current workload that they're not actually out there doing the networking, doing the social media, doing the, all the other things they need to do to make sure that they have a constant flow of people coming through their doors. And I think that can be a really tricky thing for very small companies, but I guess it's just about time management and discipline at that point. I think you could subcontract as well. I think there's some people in, you know, with less staff that occasionally subcontract um, and then present it together or, you know, or themselves or, go, or give a brief to their, almost they become an, a second client to the designer and the designer gives a very full brief of, you know, what they expect. And sometimes it does get subcontracted down to people that aren't so busy. And that's quite a good, you, you know, good if, tool. To, if you're to over have, busy. If you're over busy, you know, and, and, you can keep your eye on other things and do the selling and do everything else. So it, dep it depends. I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating that um, and we don't do it here, but I know some companies do do it and it works quite successfully. Even CAD technicians, you know, so subcontract CAD technicians or your, or your InDesign um, specialists and these sort of things that actually just can take a little bit of the workload off the main designer. Do you think, are your clients prepared to wait for you if you're too busy to take them on? Do you ever find that you're in a situation where you're too busy to take on a client or are you such a broad team that you can shimmy around most things? You know, we, we, much as we've got a big team, thankfully we're constantly busy and um, we do often say to people, yes, you know, we'd love to work with you, but actually, you know, we can't see you for three or four weeks. Um, but, you know, whether you're a large company or a small company, there's always peaks and drops. You know, at the moment, it's unbelievably busy because of the pandemic and because everyone concentrates on their home. So I don't think in 24, 25 years, I've ever known it quite as busy as it is now. It's 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 quite unbelievable. But over the over the years, have there been times when we've not been busy? Absolutely. You know, and and, you know, partly it could have been at the stage where we perhaps hadn't got onto the social media wagon, perhaps as earlier as others. And that was having an effect. You know, you know, there's always peaks and troughs in any business and times when you're busier than others. So, you know, I think it doesn't matter on the size. It, it, it can happen to anybody. Do interior designers grow old with their clients? 
Well, we, we tend to keep, keep a younger team. Yeah, we've got, we've got quite a young team. But actually, we've also, I mean, our, the clients have got kids and they've got relatives. And so we, we're actually, um, quite a few of our, our clients who were clients maybe 20 years ago, we're now working with three of the children, for instance. But um, I think we do try and work with some of our younger designers and put that, you know, we are very much people, people, people. So I think we recognise that perhaps that young 25 or 30 year old doesn't necessarily want always want Jenny or I. And so we get somebody of maybe more their age group, their interests mm. and work with them. And so although we're on hand as, as the experience in the background and that we definitely let, let a lot of the conversation and the aspirations be discussed between the younger designer and the client. So um, step in as and when we think is required, but definitely it's allowing that that age group to talk together. So then finally, what are the three most important things a designer should do to ensure they win new business? Continue to do, do good work. Um, promote yourself, you know, submit, your, submit yourself, for, get, get good photography, promote yourself, try to get published, do, do have, you know, do pay for uh, paid marketing in addition to your social media engagement um, and ask for business. I think that it's, you know, and, I, and the number two, by the way, where, you know, you're, you're, you're paying to promote yourself, everything's an investment. And there's so many, whether you have, you can do a showcase or you, uh, charity auctions, there's some millions of things you can do, pick things, be consistent and keep trying. And then also, as I said, not be afraid to ask for business, you know, go to that developer, put your hand out, make yourself known and, you know, and, and see if you have a connection because that's, you know, what may very well may lead to your first project with them. You know, this doesn't, the industry doesn't serve the wallflowers very well. <laughs> exactly. I think to laugh, you know, to be able to laugh with your clients mm -hmm. and have fun. Mm -hmm. We've all, you know, it's our day job. We need to have fun doing it. We need to enjoy it. Thank you Lloyd, Helen and Jenny for sharing your time with us today and for providing such wonderful advice. It seems like it's the same message that we always end up with. It's about forming relationships, maintaining relationships and enjoying your relationships. Absolutely. Great discussion and thank you all so much for taking part today. We'd like to thank our series supporters, John Lewis and Partners Business and Parkside Architectural Tiles for their support. More information on both companies is available at johnlewis.com slash business and at parkside.co.uk. Finally, do follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod and on LinkedIn at the Interior Design Business Podcast. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production. <laughs>